Our goal here, even as the Russian invasion of Ukraine is beginning, is to avert the worst case scenario. Well, that seems reasonable. Thank you. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI in California, in Round Mountain on KKRN and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's, AM 950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Burden Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all your favorite podcast sites except for Spotify. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today as the fight for imperiled democracy continues here at home, overseas, and of course, right here on the Bradcast. Welcome to it. The uh, lawmakers in Ukraine on Wednesday approved a nationwide state of emergency amid fears right now of an all-out Russian invasion. The parliament approved Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's decree that imposes the measure for 30 days, the emergency uh, nationwide state of emergency, for 30 days, beginning on Thursday, allowing authorities to impose restrictions on movement, block rallies, ban political parties and organizations, quote, in the interest of national security and public order. The move follows Russian President Vladimir Putin's move on Monday to recognize the independence of two rebel regions in eastern Ukraine, where a nearly eight-year conflict with pro-Russian forces has left over 14,000 dead. Over the past eight years or so, depending on what Putin decides to do next, those numbers could become much, much higher in Eastern Europe. Putin has sanctioned the deployment of Russian troops there to, quote, maintain peace and received a parliamentary approval in Russia to use military force outside of the country. President Biden on Tuesday described the move into sovereign Ukraine territory as a, quote, invasion in violation of international law before describing sanctions that the U.S. and 27 European uh, European Union nations were taking 
in unison together imposing on Russian banks and elites, uh, including shutting down the critical Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline from Russia to Germany, promising uh, more to come the farther that Russia moves into Ukraine. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said on Wednesday that Russian aggression toward Ukraine is, quote, an attack on democracy, vowing that the U.S. will stand united with allies around the world, ensuring financial and political support for an independent Ukraine. Nonetheless, new polling shows there is currently little support among Americans, at least for a major U.S. role in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. As President Biden has acknowledged a growing likelihood that war in Eastern Europe would affect Americans, at least at the gas pump, even while sending out troops. Uh, I'm sorry, even while ruling out troops, I should say. <laughs> yes, that's kind of to important. big difference there. <laughs> yeah. uh, ruling out sending troops to Ukraine. Hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. <laughs> Just uh, 26 percent of Americans polled say that the U.S. should have a major role in the conflict. According to the new poll from AP, 52 percent say a minor role would be okay. 20 percent want no part at all in any of it. And I bet I can identify which 26 percent or so that comes from of the country. Tucker Carlson viewers? (laughs) Yes. Okay. As a matter of fact. A uh, senior U.S. defense official in Washington says the uh, Russian forces arrayed along Ukraine's borders are, quote, as ready as they can be for an invasion if ordered to launch it. U.S. authorities have estimated that Russia has more than 150,000 troops along Ukraine's border with Russia and Belarus. The official said the U.S. has indications based on intelligence as well as visual evidence that they, the Russian forces, have advanced their readiness to a point where they are literally ready to go now if they get the order to go. Meanwhile, give peace a chance. China's United Nations, China's United Nations ambassador is urging a diplomatic and peaceful solution to the crisis, stressing Beijing's, quote, consistent position on safeguarding the sovereignty and territorial integrity of all states and upholding the U.N. Charter. Interesting coming from China, even as you give me that glance that no one can see on the radio, Desi Doyen. Uh, Anyway, good. I'm glad they're in favor of safeguarding the sovereignty and territorial integrity of all states. I'm sure that that has nothing whatsoever to do with their idea that Taiwan is part of their sovereignty and territorial integrity. Ah, I see. Well, we will have more on Ukraine in a bit, including from the author of a piece this week headlined, A Dissenting View of U.S. Policy Towards Russia. Longtime journalist and author John Judas will join us momentarily for that. And... There is some breaking news in one of the Trump investigations that I hope we'll be able to get to as well a bit later today. But very quickly, for some better news, I think, for at least for American democracy and at least for today. uh, First, a story that broke late last week. I'm only able to get to it now. But Republicans on the Ohio Redistricting Commission declared defeat last week in their attempts to redraw state legislative maps in the face of a court-set deadline last Thursday. They said they saw no path forward that would both comply with orders from the state's high court and meet the state's constitution. 
The two Democrats on the seven-member redistricting commission rejected the GOP line of argument after presenting a version of Ohio House and Senate maps that their map, map makers said were perfectly constitutional. Those maps, however, went down to a vote of defeat on the commission in a party line vote shortly before the deadlock was then declared. As Ohio continues to wade through a new redistricting process for the first time, it was unclear where Thursday's decision not to act would leave the three separate lawsuits that have been filed against the original maps that were rejected by the Republican majority U.S. Supreme Court. It's uh, left those lawsuits now uh, up in the air as far as how this all moves forward. Those suits were filed by voting rights groups and Democratic groups. The impasse also raised questions for the fate of Ohio's primary, still scheduled, at least for now, for May 3. The uh, Secretary of State, Frank LaRose, and other Republicans said that their party's expert mapmakers simply could not find a way to draw constitutional maps that met all of the Ohio Supreme Court's requirements. Couldn't find a way or didn't want to find a way, Frank. Democrats seem to have no problem drawing such a map. Uh, Democratic co-chair Senator Vernon Sykes maligned Republicans for what he said was a dereliction of duty as the state's ruling party. He said the majority has the responsibility and the authority to rule, to decide. They've got the numbers. But in spite of the fact that you have super majorities in the House and Senate in the state, all the statewide offices, the congressional delegation, this commission and the Ohio Supreme Court, you've been unable and unwilling to comply with our highest directives, and that is to comply with the state constitution. Republican Governor Mike DeWine, a member of the commission, said, quote, we have an obligation under law to give them, the Supreme Court, a third map. I think it is a mistake for this commission to stop and to basically say we're at an impasse. Nonetheless, no additional maps were on the table as the panel adjourned last week. Republican Senate President Matt Huffman argued that drawing individual districts to favor or disfavor one party or another is in itself gerrymandering, which, of course, he would never want to do. Uh, he charged the uh, Democrats' latest maps would have displaced more than a dozen sitting Republican lawmakers. Oh, what do you know? Sounds bad for Republicans. But yeah, you know, after 10 years of gerrymandering in the Buckeye State before Ohio voters voted overwhelmingly by more than 70 percent to amend the state constitution to require fair districts that represent the state's closely partisan voting habits. Yeah, that sort of thing is going to happen. Republicans are going to lose a lot of seats if they don't get to use their previously gerrymandered maps. Now, uh, these battles are on the state legislative maps and the uh, congressional maps. Uh, the uh, state Supreme Court had also previously rejected that Republican-drawn map. And again, it's a Republican-leaning state Supreme Court. Republicans could end up losing a minimum of three U.S. House seats for Ohio, depending on the way this goes. They could lose even more if they follow what the voters expressly put into the state constitution back in 2015. So nobody seems to know what's going to happen next. It sure sounds to me, at least, like the state 
Supreme Court in Ohio may end up being the ones to determine both the new legislative and congressional maps there, at least if Republicans on the commission keep blocking uh, progress with their tantrums. So that story continues, but is trending well in favor of democracy. And then there is this today out of another key swing state, Pennsylvania. According to the Capitol Star there, Pennsylvania's highest court has picked a map, one that was submitted by voters backed by a national group aligned with Democrats to be the Commonwealth's next congressional map. In a five-page order, the state Supreme Court there ordered four to three that the map be adopted as soon as possible. The National Redistricting Action Fund, a group aligned with Democrats, asked judges to pick the map when it appeared that Governor Tom Wolf, a Democrat, and the Republican-controlled General Assembly could not agree on a proposal. Another dozen plaintiffs, along with uh, with the uh, group, uh, the the Carter Group, is this map is known as the Carter Map. Another dozen plaintiffs, along with the Carter Group, submitted maps to the court. And the Supreme Court chose this one. The current map was enacted only in 2018. That after the high court struck down the GOP drawn map that had been in use since the beginning of the decade, finding it a partisan gerrymander that unnecessarily split municipalities to Republicans advantage. Pennsylvania, after the 2020 census, is now losing a congressional seat this year because of lagging population growth. So the new map fixes this problem by drawing two GOP incumbents into one single congressional district. The Democratic governor, Tom Wolf, who had submitted his own map to the court, called the Carter Plan, quote, a fair map that will result in a congressional delegation mirroring the citizenry of Pennsylvania, Political analysts have broadly agreed to that. The order now partially eases some of the uncertainty over Pennsylvania's 2022 elections, but at least one legal challenge remains. A group of five Republican voters, including two GOP congressional candidates. I wonder if they're the ones that are going to have to compete with each other now in Mm. this uh, new map. Anyway, they filed a lawsuit in federal district court earlier this month asking for a federal judge to block the state court from implementing a map. I guess they want to stick with the old one. Now, given the uh, U.S. Supreme Court's recent decision to block an order from a lower uh, lower court three-judge panel in Alabama ordering the state to add another black majority district to its congressional maps... Uh, that three court, three judge panel had found uh, that this was needed after a full trial, after a 250 page ruling determined that the state had violated Section two of the Voting Rights Act. But the U.S. Supreme Court blocked that for now, put that on hold, promised, well, we'll hear it later this year, allowing the uh, unlawful map to move ahead for 2022. So with that in mind, who knows what's going to happen now in federal court regarding Pennsylvania. But for the moment, at least, 
The matter is decided in Pennsylvania by their state Supreme Court, and the process of candidates collecting signatures to get on the May 17 primary ballot will now officially begin this Friday. So, a bit of good news, at least for now, for American democracy anyway. Overseas, well, things are not going quite as well. For that, let's take a quick break here. We'll be joined by John Judas with what he describes as a bit of a dissenting view of U.S. policy toward Russia. That and the breaking Trump investigation news. That's all ahead on today's broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Our nightmare election may be over, but new ones are on the way. Here at the Bradcast and Bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Well, there's a golden oldie for you. There's actually a reason for playing that song. It'll be clearer in a moment. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Longtime friend of the show, occasional guest, and longtime Philadelphia Inquirer and Daily News columnist Will Bunch notes in his newsletter on Tuesday, headlined, Who Killed the Post-1945 Dream of a World Without Global Conflict? He notes, no one knows yet if bombs will rain down on the 2.8 million innocent civilians of the capital city of Kiev, like a modern rendering of Picasso's horrific Guernica. All we know is that it wasn't supposed to be this way. He writes, I'm not going to go deep here on analyzing the more minute geopolitics of what led Russia to this flashpoint of aggression against its flawed democratic neighbor or what's inside the warped kleptocratic mind of Putin. But I do think it's time to look more deeply into something that I do write about frequently here, which is the failing state of democracy, both in the freedom to vote, but also the broader sense of an economy that works for everyone and how that makes global war inevitable once in the 1930s and seemingly again today. Will Bunch notes there was a moment when everything could have turned. After communism collapsed in 1989 and revelers partied atop the Berlin Wall as an artist named Jesus Jones sang, Right here, right now, there is no place I'd rather be. In the 1990s, the promise of a so-called peace dividend seemed to guarantee that most of the world would continue to prefer democracy and the more worker-friendly forms of capitalism. So what went wrong, he asks. America could have led the pursuit of an actual kinder, gentler world, but we were already too far gone in abandoning the public good for the winner-take-all mythology of a fake meritocracy that produced the unequal world of neoliberalism. Here, a military-industrial complex pushed for the U.S. to dominate the global stage, just like a handful of billionaire plutocrats dominated the economy. The move to reject the shared prosperity of a peace dividend instead invented new enemies. 
from Panama to Iraq, where an oil-soaked invasion under absurdly false pretenses has made it so much harder to call out Putin or China's Xi Jinping today when they copy our lethal playbook. Our policy failures, he writes, in Russia are particularly instructive. The fall of the USSR seemed to hold the promise for a true democracy in the land of Stalin and the czars, and the U.S. pledged to help make that happen. Instead, we sent our overpaid, focus group-driven consultants to prop up a bumbling Boris Yeltsin and help Russia build an economy modeled a little too well after our own corrupt kleptocracy. The only thing less surprising than a 21st century czar like Putin promising the common people to make Russia great again is that the resentful formerly middle class Americans of, quote, flyover country would launch our own Putin in Donald Trump. But the strong men who promise that I alone can fix it, as opposed to the harder work of a society that works for everyone, must inevitably turn to every dictator's last Hail Mary pass for greatness, starting a war. Today we watch President Biden, surely the last POTUS born during World War II, trying desperately to rebuild both the global alliances and the fundamental idealism of what feels like a bygone era. It may be too little, too late for Ukraine, writes Bunch, or for worse conflicts to come. We've had 77 long years since the last world war to build the kind of planet where we could, where that could never happen again. And it looks like we blew it for the post-war post-war baby boomers of America and the world. How we let this happen is the question of a lifetime. That question, I think, is somewhat at the center of another piece yesterday from another occasional guest of ours on this program. Writing at TPM on Tuesday, John Judas notes, I oppose Russian President Vladimir Putin's decision to dismember Ukraine, and I support placing sanctions on Russia. But I am leery of the political process by which the U.S. and Russia reached this turn of the road, which could signal the beginning of a Cold War II. I might suggest it signals perhaps much worse than a Cold War II, but back to Judas, he writes, The process is sadly reminiscent of how the U.S. had previously come to a point in its foreign policy where it had no favorable options. Joining us now is longtime journalist, author, and editor at large for TalkingPointsMemo.com, John Judas. He formerly worked at the New, New Republic for 25 years, and his articles have appeared all over the place. The American Prospect, New York Times, Washington Post, Foreign Affairs, Washington Monthly, and elsewhere. He's also the author of, I believe, eight books at this point, with his latest recently published the Politics of Our Time, Populism, Nationalism, and Socialism. Oh, Mr. Judas, it has been a while, but welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Yeah, I'm uh, glad to be there. Uh, you write in your piece, quote, Since the Cold War's end, American foreign policy has been conducted by responding to today's news 
decrying America's lack of a long-term perspective, adding, on the basis of this entirely unrealistic view of the world, the U.S. has stumbled into crises that it didn't know it was creating. So can you give me, for purposes of discussion here, can you give me some examples of what that means for the moment in regard to other crises beside uh, Russia-Ukraine for the moment, just for perspective here? Well, uh, we could talk about the U.S.-China, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, In the 1990s, the Clinton administration thought that by um, integrating China into the uh, world capitalist system, Mm -hmm. they they would provide, uh, you know, millions of jobs for Americans, uh, an export surplus for the United States, and they would encourage uh, China to become uh, uh, democratic because, you know, the theory was that as you become more capitalist, you become more democratic. Mm-hmm. You know, this was, a, this was an entirely abstract notion, not, not borne out by any uh, particular uh, experience, uh, but more by a kind of uh, millennial dream that Americans have had of a uh, world transformation, of making the, the world like us. Mm. And it uh, backfired. And, uh, well, you know, what it reflected, again, was a lack of understanding of, uh, of history and an mm. inability to put ourselves in other people's shoes and to think about, you know, what would really happen in that country if we did X. Would they respond? Why? Uh, we had a similar experience with Iraq, where we thought we could starve uh, Saddam out uh, and uh, where we conducted all these bombing raids over mythical uh, uh, existence of uh, uh, weapons of mass destruction. And really, if you look at the invasion of uh, Iraq in Mm -hmm. 2003, a lot of that was uh, preceded by uh, steps that were taken in the 1990s by by Clinton and Blair, Mm -hmm. uh, including uh, something called the Iraq Liberation Act. So so we sort of get into these things willy-nilly. We we start off, we're going to make things better, and we end up with a big war. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you look at at what's happening now with uh, Russia and the Ukraine, it didn't begin yesterday. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you really want to go back, it begins in 1989, 1990 when uh, Helmut Kohl, the Chancellor of Germany, wants to uh, reunite uh, East and West Germany. Mm-hmm. The uh, Berlin Wall has fallen down. The Russians, by treaty, by the post-World War II treaty, had a right to station their troops and to continue to station their troops in the East, period. They mm-hmm. had that right. Mm-hmm. So what were we going to do in order to get the Russians to agree to the reunification of East and West and to remove their troops from the East. What we did was we gave them a promise that we wouldn't expand our uh, military alliance, originally uh, directed against them, NATO, uh, eastward. Jim Baker, the Secretary of State, gives it to Mikhail Gorbachev. Uh, it's in the various notes of discussion, mm-hmm. it's not uh, something that's uh, just ma- made up. There was no written pledge in a treaty that the Senate or, or anybody reviewed. Instead, it was something that was discussed between the parties. Mm-hmm. The Russians took it as a real promise. 
we might have uh, taken it as a promise at the time. Who knows what was, was in Baker's mind? But within a year or two, uh, the Americans are thinking that they can forget that. And Clinton, in 1996, uh, pressured by uh, both Republicans and Democrats, decides to go to expand NATO eastward. Uh, you know, also I've pressured by defense mm-hmm. contractors because mm-hmm. when you expand NATO eastward, each country has to have a certain minimum uh, defense uh, right. uh, military, and it has to be according to certain standard measures. So they can't buy the stuff from Russia or India or anybody like that. They're going to have to buy it from the United States, France, or Great Britain, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, again, the big lobby at the time for NATO expansion was uh, uh, led by a former Lockheed Martin executive by the name of Bruce Jackson. So we go ahead and we expand uh, NATO. Uh, the Russians protest, uh, Boris Yeltsin, uh, president at the time, uh, pro- protested vigorously. Putin, when he comes into power, uh, Yeltsin uh, uh, appoints him as a successor. Uh, protests, protests vigorously in 2007 and 2008, right before this NATO meeting at which George W. Bush, uh, prodded by John McCain, and uh, again supported by Barack Obama, they're the two presidential candidates, proposes that uh, the Ukraine and Georgia be led into uh, NATO. Mm-hmm. This means really that, uh, you know, with with the Baltic states, you already had NATO on the edge of, the, of uh, uh, Russia. With Ukraine, you really have it right right next door, and uh, you have it bit in, a, in a big way. And again, you have to look at Russian history. Uh-huh. Invasion by Napoleon in the early 19th century, World War One, World War Two. World War Two, they lose 27 million people. Now, you know, we're not talking about the United States and how many we lost. They were the big uh, party to sacrifice in that war. Yeah. And you can say, well, there's a paranoia there. But look, you have two centuries, huge wars, huge invasions. You have an alliance that was built uh, in, 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 in as an adversary of the Soviet Union, a military alliance, and it's going to expand uh, right next door to them. So, again, uh, if you put yourself in in their shoes, you don't have to be paranoid. You don't have to be a nut in order, as a Russian, to find this objectionable. So, again, that's the... That's the uh, that's the background. Uh-huh. I mean, what happens in 2008 also is when they propose that uh, Georgia, uh, the other state uh, uh, besides Ukraine, be allowed into the uh, in, into NATO. Uh, the Georgian leadership, uh, emboldened by this, uh, attacks uh, this uh, pro- pro- again this uh, rebel pop separatist uh, mm-hmm. movement within its own country, South. Osetia, I think it's pronounced, Mm -hmm. uh, that again was uh, friendly to the Russians. And the Russians uh, come back and uh, defend them, and they are now a, uh, they now have the status of the uh, uh, the provinces within the Donbass that the Russians are are going to, uh, uh, that that they have recognized. So, uh, again, this has happened before. This happened in 2008. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, uh, 
Putin's not a good guy. I mean, he has uh, designs, expansion. Uh, he's a uh, you know, but again, the background is not thinking about what how Russians were going to view this, what their national interest was, uh-huh. and having this kind of hazy, dreamlike millennial view of a <laughs> oh, unified world in which uh, the United States would lead this uh, world, world yeah. capitalism, and it just hasn't come to pass. It's a different world. And, you know, now we're facing a, a very difficult situation in we, Ukraine. We are, you know, and I'm, I'm actually still, John Judas, uh, struck by the, the way you started uh, those remarks that, you know, the idea that the more capitalism there is, the more democracy there, there will be around the world. When here in our own country, it seems to be quite the opposite. The more capitalism there is, it seems like the less democracy there actually is. So why we think that would apply elsewhere differently, I'm not sure. This notion, though, that... Uh, NATO and and make no mistake, I too am. I understand the the concerns about NATO. You know, if if we had, for example, Mexico joining in in a defensive military pact with Russia, you know, on our border, pointing rockets in our direction, I'm quite sure the U.S. would not stand for that in any way, shape, or form. But this notion that the fight over NATO is somehow at the center of this is somewhat belied by a few different points, uh, one of which was noted by Michael McFaul. He's the former U.S. ambassador to Russia under um, uh, Barack Obama. He quoted several times uh, where Putin seemed to be just fine with the expansion of NATO. Believe it or not, he gave direct quotes. You know, uh, you mentioned uh, 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 the Baltic states in 2001 and whether Putin opposed the Baltic states membership in NATO. Putin Putin said, quote, we, of course, are not in a position to tell people what to do. We cannot forbid people to make certain choices if they want to increase the security of their nations in a particular way. He didn't seem to be bothered by NATO at the time, at least according to these quotes, at least according to McFaul. Is is this NATO business a pretext for something else? I feel that it might be. I'm not a foreign policy expert, but I feel that it might be. And I'm I'm wondering your thought. And I'll tell you what I think it is. But what are your thoughts on that? Well, it, it may be. We could only find that out if we actually negotiated uh, with Putin over uh, uh, Ukraine mm-hmm. being or not being in NATO. As far as whether uh, he objects to NATO, you know, there's been some uh, back and forth with Putin over the years. I mean, he cooperated with the United States after uh, Mm 9-11 in in Afghanistan. You know, he he was of some service initially uh, on Syria Mm -hmm. uh, in 2013 and 14, uh, again with Iran and the nuclear deal. So it hasn't all been um, it, it hasn't all been av- adversarial, and he's made friendly comments at time. But you know, I could pick out a thread uh, beginning in 1996 with Yeltsin and with uh, you know uh, Putin's very explicit warning right before the uh, Bucharest meeting in 2008, where mm-hmm. NATO um, talked about expanding uh, to Ukraine mm-hmm. and Georgia, where it was pretty clear that it was a big issue for him. I think that it was stoked to some extent 
by the unwillingness of uh, the Ukrainian government after these Minsk II uh, negotiations mm-hmm. took place in 2015 with France, Germany, Ukraine, and, and Russia to uh, give the Donbass provinces uh, some o- autonomy mm-hmm. within the uh, overall government. He, you know, the pro- the the president of Ukraine had a lot of problems with with a right-wing nationalist in the country itself. Yes, very uh, right-wing, very ultra-nationalist. Mean, they are Nazis, the ultra-nationalists who objected right. to that Minsk so, II so treaty. That, yeah. You know, that again has a complicated history yeah. again, because uh, Stalin, uh, you know, three or four million Ukrainians uh, perished, so mm-hmm. there was during World War II, they were uh, some of the Ukrainians were pro-Nazi, so right. yeah, like everything else, but but again, there was a certain provocation. There was an unwillingness on the part, uh, it seemed, of the Ukrainian uh, government to to abide by uh, Minsk too. Mm-hmm. There were certain uh, measures of uh, offensive measures, the use of drones by the Ukra- Ukrainians against uh, the uh, Russian se- pro-Russian separatists. Um, uh, Zelensky also. Uh, reiterates that he would like um, uh, Ukraine to be part of NATO, so that thing gets aired. So, you know, again, there's a reason if it had been suppressed before and if Putin had made some some uh, comments to that effect over the years, why it would rise again and uh, be, a pro- be a prominent part of the uh, discussion. Well, let me jump when in. He asked, yeah. Let me just say yeah, yeah, one yeah. other thing. Sure. When he when he demands of the U.S. and Biden, I mean, I think it's in late December, not in early January, that they put their proposals in writing. That's a clear reference back to 1990. Mm, yeah, that's exactly what he's thinking about. And, you know, I agree, uh, as noted, that, well, U.S. foreign policy failures have obviously paved, helped pave the way for where we are right now. I'm just not sure what we might have done differently that would have ended up, uh, that would have changed the the path that Putin ultimately decided to take here. Because in truth... You know, while NATO is obviously a bee in his bonnet, I noted on on yesterday's show that this line from Washington Post editorial board yesterday has kind of been ringing the most true for me. I'm wondering your thoughts. Uh, They write Mr. Putin's pseudo history about the kinship of Russians and Ukrainians ignores his true reason for targeting Ukraine. It's not due to Russian national security, but to preserve his own power in Moscow, which would be threatened by a successful democratic experiment in a former Soviet Republic of Ukraine's size and cultural importance. Now, as noted, I'm no foreign policy expert, but I do think that this seems to be about Putin's own concerns back home, the threat that he sees from a potentially prosperous democratic neighbor like Ukraine, if that were ever to happen. And and I'm not sure how U.S. foreign policy could have or should have been any different to take that into account. Is that something that we could have or should have played the uh, the long ball game, as you describe in, in your piece at TPM? Well, well, you got me on too many questions here. <laughs> Sorry. But look, as far as this Washington Post thing, I, I don't know what Putin's uh, uh, inner thoughts are, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I suspect neither does do uh, the uh, do American officials mm-hmm. 
but he's in a stronger political position uh, right now than he's been for a while. I mean, there is no organized opposition yeah. uh, in Russia to him. You know, he has elections coming up, but um, uh, that, that's been no big deal uh, for him. Yeah. So uh, I, I'm really not sure about this uh, uh, view that it's uh, that uh, his offensive on the Ukraine is meant to shore mm-hmm. up his position in uh, Russia. And from the little we know, uh, it's not going to be as popular as Crimea was, as his taking Crimea, which was always a Russian possession and uh, had been given to, to the Ukraine by Khrushchev mm-hmm. as a kind of plum. Right. So Ukraine itself, what, the, it's, you know, these Freedom House or whatever do these corruption things, and it's like the third most corrupt uh, nation in, uh, you know, in, in Eurasia, Europe and Asia. Only mm-hmm. one of the stand companies at Russia itself are ahead of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, you know, and it's also the poorest country in Europe. So, you know, it's not, this idea that it's going to be a model, Uh uh, I think, is not very uh, plausible. I mean, they'd have more reason to worry about Poland or Estonia Mm. or or one of those countries than they do about uh, Ukraine. So, again, that might, I'm not saying it's not not a factor, but the dominant factor, I don't think that there's a a reason to to, to, uh, think that that's true. Um, Long ball. You don't know whether this could have worked, but uh, again, neutrality for Ukraine, similar to Finland, Mm -hmm. something along those lines. I think Macron, the uh, uh, French president, uh, wanted something like that, but he's not the one to broach it. It would have had to be agreed to by the Americans. And that's the kind of long ball proposal that might have worked. We don't know whether it would have. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might be that uh, that uh, Putin was determined to uh, go into the uh, Donbass. We really don't know. But the, what we do know is that they didn't try, and that they rebuked, uh, they they batted back any uh, attempt uh, to commit themselves to not making uh, Ukraine part of NATO, even though. All of them assured uh, uh, their local audiences in the United States and Europe that they didn't want Ukraine to be part of uh, NATO because, in that case, they would, you know, we would have to send troops. Right. Uh, so it was a kind of weird situation, and uh, I, I think again, I think I think uh, Biden is a creature again of the Washington uh, foreign policy establishment. Mm-hmm. In a way that uh, you know Nixon wasn't in in the early seventies, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. Donald Trump was not either, mm-hmm. and um, he, you know he's not going to make a bold move, and he hasn't made a bold move. But only that kind of thing could have re- really um, resolved the conflict, short of what what we have now, which is at least a you know a mini war taking place. Well. In the, very quickly, John Judas, uh, since we're coming up against the clock, the the notion that, uh, and I've seen this from, uh, and I, I use the word advisedly, uh, conservative columnist, a, a fellow at Defense Priorities, uh, Daniel De, De, De Petris, uh and others I've seen uh, argue this, that, in fact, Ukraine will never be a member of NATO anyway. And that taking NATO off the table reflects the power dynamics, averts what could be the largest war in Europe since 1945 and is therefore the best option for the U.S. and the Ukraine. 
Should the U.S. in fact be making uh, U.S. and NATO and EU be making these difficult decisions to uh, perhaps accede to a demand like that from Putin because otherwise the cost could be, you know, World War Three. Well, I, again, I think it, it's reasonable not to expand. Uh, yes, I think that they that they shouldn't have done done the proposal in the first place. And uh, uh, I, I, I think of all the proposals, the neutrality one makes is, makes the most sense mm. because in that case, Putin himself would ha- they would have to give something. In other words, they would have to abandon any uh, uh, desire to integrate uh, to reintegrate Ukraine as mm-hmm. part of. Uh, Russia. That's a real deal. That's that's something where both sides uh, uh, get something. Mm. So that would be really the you know the thing I would look at. Mm. And the uh, the NATO thing is a kind of a subset of that. The uh, your TPM piece is headlined "A Dissenting View of U.S. Policy Toward Russia." We spoke a little bit about this off air. Uh, why did you feel drawn to uh, write this piece, John Judas? Well, if you listen, you know I, I I don't watch that. I don't watch cable TV that much, but I watch except for sports. But uh-huh. I watch the, you know, I watch the News Hour uh, at seven o'clock here. Mm-hmm. And if you listen to NPR Public Radio, I really all the voices you hear are foreign policy establishment types mm-hmm. uh, in, uh, arguing uh, uh, on a very narrow tactical basis mm-hmm. or advancing arguments like the one you just uh, repeated to mm-hmm. me from the uh, Washington Post editorial mm-hmm. uh, page that it's really it, the whole thing is about Putin assuring up his domestic support. So I, I, I felt like even though I'm not an expert to say the least on uh, the Ukraine and uh, Russia that I, I should uh, as long as I have a form uh, put put in my uh, two bits about the issue. We will point to your two bits about the issue over at TalkingPointsMemo.com. The uh, article is A Dissenting View of U.S. Policy Toward Russia. And John Judas, before I let you go, just in case it's another five years before we speak again, the uh, your new book, The Politics of Our Time, Populism, Nationalism, and Socialism. I know it's absolutely impossible, but can you give us the quick elevator pitch? Uh, I will, of course, link to that book uh, for people to check it out, but uh, can you give us the, the quick pitch before you go? Well, the quick pitch is that it's really what the, the political movements that arise in the late uh, part of, our la- of the last decade as a result of the breakdown of uh, neoliberalism. And... Uh, uh, each of those is an is an aspect of it. There's a lot. I was lucky with the populism book, which is the first part of it mm-hmm. that uh, which originally came out, and then I revised it for this book uh, right be- before Trump won. So right, uh, <laughs> it's um, um, so it's about again left wing and right wing populism, the Bernies and the and the uh, Trumps and the nationalism as a, uh, as it revives in the Europe and the United States, make America great again. Yeah. And uh, the the argument, if there is one, toward the end is for a kind of uh, democratic socialism. It's not. Uh, I'm not a. Uh, I'm not a, a, a dogmatic Marxist socialist or Leninist. I don't. I don't think we can eliminate markets. I think that uh, there's a lot we could learn from social democracy in mm-hmm. uh, Europe, and um, uh, that's a direction that we should go in in terms of uh, 
strengthening our soft safety debt in the United States mm-hmm. and uh, uh, regulating uh, corporations so that they act in the national interest and encouraging uh, uh, power from below unions. So what? that's uh, that's that's pretty much my formula there. What? But um, <laughs> right now we're pre- preoccupied with other things. Well, if you're going to talk about regulating uh, corporations and supporting unions, I'm going to have to let you go, John. John Judas uh, can be found, his uh, latest piece at TPM, A Dissenting View of U.S. Policy Toward Russia. You can't. We will, of course, link to that at TalkingPointsMemo.com. You can find him on the Twitters at John B. Judas. And, of course, his new book, The Politics of Our Time, Populism, Nationalism, and socialism. John, really appreciate uh, you joining us today. Hope to uh, talk to you again soon, sir. Sure. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thank you, John. Okay. <laughs> uh, that was quite a history lesson. It was. It was a good one. Yes. Good to talk to him. All right. Quick break, and we're back with that breaking news out of New York regarding uh, the criminal investigation of Donald Trump. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. It's up to you, New York, New York. Yes, it was supposed to be up to you, New York. Don't screw this up. Oh, New York, New York. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Two prosecutors. This uh, breaking news uh, shortly before air today from the New York Times. Everyone else has picked this up now. But the uh, two prosecutors leading the Manhattan District Attorney's investigation into former President Donald Trump and his business practices abruptly resigned on Wednesday amid a month-long pause in their presentation of evidence to a grand jury. That, according to people uh, with knowledge of the matter, the stunning development, as the Times describes it, comes not long after the high-stakes inquiry appeared to be gaining momentum and now throws its future into serious doubt. The prosecutors who have stepped down are Carrie Dunn and Mark Pomerantz. They submitted their resignations after the new Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg indicated to them that he had doubts about moving forward with the case, the criminal case, against Donald Trump, according to the people. Pomerantz confirmed in a brief interview that he had resigned, but declined to elaborate. Dunn declined to comment altogether. Without Bragg's commitment to move forward, the prosecutors late last month postponed a plan to question at least one witness before the grand jury said one of the people. They have not questioned any witnesses in front of the grand jury for more than a month now, essentially pausing their criminal investigation into whether Trump inflated the value of his assets to obtain favorable loan terms from banks. The precise reason for the new DA, Alvin Bragg, for his pullback are unknown, and he has made uh, few public statements about the status of the inquiry since taking office at the beginning of the year. In a statement responding to the resignations of the prosecutors, 
A spokesman for the office said that he was, quote, grateful for their service, unquote, and that the investigation was ongoing. Okay. Without Mr. Dunn, a high-ranking veteran of the office who's been closely involved with the inquiry for years, and without Mr. Pomerantz, a leading figure in New York uh, legal circles, uh, who was enlisted to work on it, the years-long investigation could, according to the Times anyway, peter out. Oh, boy. Yeah, I know. Dunn, the office's former general counsel, had argued before the U.S. Supreme Court successfully in the fight for Trump's tax records. Pomerantz was brought out of private practice by Va uh, Cyrus Vance, who ran the investigation last year and in the years prior. Yeah, but he declined to seek re-election, which is how Bragg got in. Correct. Uh, he was brought out of uh, Pomerantz was brought brought in by Vance uh, to add his expertise in white collar investigations to the probe. The resignations follow the months long pa month long pause and mark a reversal after the investigation had recently intensified. Vance, uh, who was the predecessor to Bragg, had convened the grand jury in the fall. Prosecutors began questioning witnesses before. Vance's term concluded at the end of the year. In mid-January, reporters for The Times had observed significant activity related to the investigation at the lower Manhattan courthouse where the grand jury meets. At least two witnesses visited the building and stayed inside for hours, according to The Times. The witnesses were Trump's longtime accountant and an expert in the real estate industry, according to people familiar with the appearances, which have not been previously reported. Dunn and Pomerantz also made regular appearances at the courthouse. The burst of activity offered a sign that Bragg at the time was forging ahead with the grand jury phase of the investigation, which is considered a final step before seeking charges. But in recent weeks, that activity has ceased and Dunn and Pomerantz have been seen only rarely. AP reports the DA's office investigation led to criminal tax fraud charges last July against Trump's company and the, uh, the, the Trump organization and its longtime finance chief, Alan Weisselberg. Weisselberg was accused of collecting more than $1.7 million in off-the-books compensation for himself, including apartment rent, car payments, school tuition for his kids and grandkids. Uh, they've uh, Both he and the company have pleaded not guilty. On Tuesday, lawyers for Weiselberg and the Trump Organization had filed court papers seeking to throw out that case. Weiselberg's lawyer argued the DA's office was targeting him as punishment for uh, refusing to flip on the former president. But just last month, Bragg said that he was proud of the continuity that Dunn and Pomerantz had brought in running the high-profile investigation through the transition from Vance's administration to his leadership. He said, I do think one continuity is the staffing and uh, Vance brought on incredible lawyers to do it, said Bragg. This was back in uh, in January, ja the, uh, January 20th, a question and answer session with reporters. 
He said, and they've been dedicated and we've been working and keeping them in place and thinking about the kind of resources to continue the investigation in order to then be in a position to make decisions on the direction of the probe. Bragg said at the time he was getting up to speed on the Trump investigation and that he would, quote, follow the facts. He didn't offer a timeline for a charging decision. He said, it's a matter that personally, as you would imagine, on is on my radar screen and that I'm mindful of and paying attention to. The pause in Bragg's case coincides with an escalation in the activity of a parallel civil inquiry by the New York State Attorney General, Letitia James. Her office is examining some of the same arguably uh, allegedly fraud, uh, fraudulent activity by Donald Trump as they look at uh, bank tax and insurance fraud. Uh, That case where James last week received approval from a judge to question Trump himself and two of his adult children under oath. That appears to be moving full speed ahead as James has filed court documents describing a number of ways in which the Trump organization appeared to have misrepresented the value of its properties, concluding Uh, according to the uh, court filings, that the Trump organization engaged in, quote, fraudulent or misleading practices. Those filings led to Trump's accounting firm, Mazars USA, informing the disgraced former president that they would no longer work with him and that the last 10 years of annual financial statements they'd prepared for his company should now be disregarded as no longer reliable based on the information that they were given by Trump. Another criminal investigation, however, of Donald Trump in New York has remained much farther below the radar. That's in New York's Westchester County, where the DA there is said to be examining Trump's financial dealings at one of his company's golf courses. Gosh, I hope we get to find out why Bragg has reversed course and is backing off the criminal investigation, if that is the case. It does seem like something is going on behind the scenes. Yeah, something. What? We don't exactly know, but I suspect there will be much uh, more to come on that (laughs) story uh, in the days ahead. Bragg has not said he's ending it, but the uh, two lead prosecutors don't seem happy. They have resigned. What does that mean? Don't know. We'll find out. Perhaps next time on the Bradcast. Until then, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to uh, John Judas of Talking Points Memo, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any others, you can download it anytime for free at Bradblog. Dot com, all of which is made possible thanks to your support at bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at the Bradblog. We'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. It's up to you, new 